Father, we thank you that you are the creator of life, and you are the creator of new life. And you who have recreated each one of us are our hope, and our hope for resurrection is in you, Lord. We pray for your blessing and your peace upon Jennifer and Sean and her, their whole family, and that you would help them in whatever they need. And please uh, open people's hearts to, uh, to give if giving is needed and to be present where presence is needed. And thank you, Lord, for your presence and for the comfort with which you have comforted us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Uh, well, Greg and Catherine uh, and Golda are visiting family in Cincinnati today, so we'll see them next week. But today we have part four of our study of the book of Acts, uh, entitled Acts, Author, Themes, Purpose. Sounds kind of academic, but it's exciting to me. I love studying this stuff. Um, let's begin. Please open your Bibles. Uh, we'll need one of those. <laughs> Got to get the good one. Yep. Please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. So, when was the book of Acts written? Uh, there is always speculation as to when a uh, text not recently written was actually written. We can know with a high degree of certainty that the book of Acts was written uh, on, in about the year A.D. 62. Now, this message is about, is entitled, Author, Themes, and Purpose. So even in the date, we begin to get into the themes. I said, A.D. 62 also called 62 CE in uh, secular or religiously neutral or religiously inclusive texts. So what does AD mean? Shout it out. Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord or in the year of our Lord. So in the year of our Lord, 62, dated to the estimated birth of Christ, which was probably about the year four or the year six, uh, BCE in secular terminology, or BC, before Christ, right? So about AD 62, and we're going to use AD in the year of our Lord instead of the secular terminology uh, CE, or uh, common era. Why? Why should we do that? Am I being too partial? Shouldn't I be more neutral in my scholarship? We who have been gathered from all nations under the banner of Christ, our King, will see in our study of Acts that the gospel of Christ is inclusive of all people and not of all religions. There are many variants of religion, but there are only two ways to relate to Jesus. The pattern in the gospels is that people meet Jesus and they either love and follow him or they reject and hate him. According to Romans 8, 7, the unconverted heart is at war with God. Quote, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If you have a king or a monarchy, 
and that king has laws, and in, in the, the universal kingdom, Jesus is the king, and he has universal laws for all people. They've never changed, although some laws have been fulfilled in him, right? Despite all our efforts to maintain neutrality and religious inclusivity, no one is neutral to Christ. This is one of the themes we will see in our study of Acts. And since everybody is either a child of God or a child of the devil, it should be no surprise that, like Christ, the disciples get persecuted again and again in Acts. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, in fact, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't sound like health and long life and a life of ease and early retirement and comfort. From about chapter 9 on, the book of Acts follows Paul and all that he had to suffer for the name of Christ. I would like to know what Paul said about all this persecution, wouldn't you? In 2 Timothy 2, he wrote to Timothy, therefore, about this persecution, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That's for all those who would come after him in the faith. That's us. He did it for you. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. That means the saying he's about to say. The saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Thus, the martyrs of the early centuries of the Christian church were unwilling upon pain of death to renounce Christ. But then what about being faithless? Well, the problem is, it's not our great faithfulness that gets us to heaven or that counts us as included in the body of Christ. It's his great faithfulness. If we are faithless and we all have times, moments, perhaps even a season of faithlessness, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Why doesn't he say, for he cannot deny those he has chosen or appointed for salvation? He says he cannot deny himself because the Lord who made you has identified, has put his name on you. As it says in Revelation, that his name is written on our foreheads, right? He gives us a new name in Christ. It's like the old-fashioned practice, or not so old-fashioned, of, of giving somebody a new name at baptism, right? And we're going to see that that may have taken place with the person to whom this letter was addressed. But let's read on. For he cannot deny himself. The book of Acts records how people all over the Jewish and later the whole Gentile world responded 
when they met disciples of Christ, witnessing to his resurrection. Everything that happened up through the start of Acts chapter 9 happened in just one to four years following the crucifixion and ascension of the Lord to his throne in heaven, which happened in either A.D. 30 or 33. We're not exactly sure because when you get into ancient history, there become gaps in the historical record because leather, you know, uh, papyrus, things that people use to record things eventually break down, get lost to the sands of time, buried or decay. And uh, so the, the earliest pieces of the New Testament date back close to the time of Christ, but not all the way back to this year, at least that we have found so far. But more discoveries are being made. So, um, because of difficulty in pinpointing an exact date, sometimes you know it's either during this person's reign, but then you don't necessarily know if this person's reign happened before or after that war that's written about elsewhere. So it's hard to nail down the exact date of the crucifixion of Christ. It was either 30 or 33. Everything that happened up through the start of Acts chapter 9 happened in the following one to four years. All the events recorded in the book of Acts are completed by about the year A.D. 62. So they begin right there in the year of Christ's ascension, and they end within about 30 years. So the book of Acts is 28 chapters and not evenly weighted spans about 30 years. There is strong reason to believe that Acts was written and dropped in the mail for delivery at that time or within a few short years of AD 62. So why do we say that? There are several important events that, that the author ought to or would have or should have included in the book of Acts if they had actually happened in time for the letter to be postmarked and dropped in the mail, right? Paul's release from prison in Rome and resumption of his ministry, which happened after the end of Acts 28, is omitted from the entire letter of Acts. It ends with Paul in house arrest in Rome, preaching the gospel unfettered, so to speak, although he's kind of fettered, right? He's, he's not hindered, it says. And then he gets released. And then he's later recaptured after further ministry, probably out in Spain, um, and he's brought back to Rome and re-imprisoned. And then Peter, who Acts records was imprisoned and then set free by angels, um, even while uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was killed, right? I might be mixing up my two Jameses. We'll get back to that. Um, one of the Jameses was killed. But, thank you. Um, but Peter's, uh, Peter's death and Paul's death are both omitted from the book of Acts. So it seems very unlikely that if the author knew about those, that their martyrdom and their becoming a holy offering to God and staying faithful in their witness would not be recorded because the overarching theme of the book of Acts is witnessing to Christ, being faithful in life and in death. Finally, uh, and, and we know that Peter and Paul's death were between about 64 and 67. In 70, we know from 
the historical record that Roman armies uh, ultimately finished conquering Jerusalem, right? The siege lasted years. The, the destruction of the Jewish temple was in A.D. 70, right? That is completely omitted. But that's a key point in the history of, of, of the explanation of how the church came to be. Because as Paul showed us in Romans, which we recently studied, Gentiles are grafted in like dead branches, picked up, delivered, saved, not burned, but instead grafted into a living olive tree, grafted into the same root. And the root from which we are all spiritually nourished and given life is the same Christ, the same spirit. And so the, the tree of life, which in the Bible is the church as included in Christ, as united with Christ, because in him was life. So the tree of life is the, spirit, the full spiritual offspring of all those who belong to Christ and are named by his name, right? So in the garden, the tree of life is like a foreshadowing of Christ and of even salvation in the church, although it's a faint glimpse of it because it doesn't get explained very clearly there, right? It's not till the book of Revelation that we see the tree of life bearing fruit, 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 like Jesus said, you will bear fruit, fruit that will remain, right? So the destruction of the Jewish temple, which ends the time of early Judaism, I'm not using the official scholarly term there, uh, it ends an era in Judaism, and it shows that Christ passed final sentence on those who killed the prophets leading up to Christ himself, right? And that would be a very important event in explaining the gospel, explaining, look, God really was displeased with this, and look, he's doing something new, and yet it's something old brought together. Because with God, it's not out with the old ways. He doesn't change his mind. It's giving us, who were as ones dead, new life in him. But we also are built on the foundation of the same apostles, and the same prophets. That's why it calls us the true Israel, right? So that's excluded from the book of Acts. It is highly likely that all these things were written down and the letter was uh, sent in the mail by about AD 62. So about 30 years. I like timelines. I don't know if you like timelines and maps as much as I do, but maybe by the end of our study you'll like them a little bit more. So, who was the author and who was the original recipient of the book of Acts? Well, first let's flip over to the book of Romans. What is the first word in the book of Romans? Paul. Paul. So, it's like saying from Paul to, what's the, what does it say in Romans 1-7? From Paul, verse 7, to all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints. But how does Acts start out? <clears throat> in the first book, what first book? And who's talking? In the first book, O Theophilus, dot, 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 dot. He never names his own name. So how do we know who wrote Luke? Could Luke have been written in the year 500 by some guy who was a disciple of Constantine trying to build up the 
false Christian religion for his own political gain? No. Let's go back to the first book. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is obviously written by somebody who is educated, and specifically, among other things, educated in classical Greek. The first four verses of the book of Luke are, some of, are one of the great examples in ancient literature of finely written classical Greek. Luke chapter 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, even in the English translation, it sounds dreadfully or wonderfully formal. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, it doesn't sound like the author of Luke and Acts, who wrote Acts being the second book, doesn't sound like he was an eyewitness. But he writes, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So the author is in that second generation of Christians or the next generation of disciples. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the author was an educated person, a person who knew how to write and could write intelligibly, and he could articulate well. He had carefully investigated all of the things that he had been taught as a disciple by going to the eyewitnesses who were there, who watched them happen. And the Lord, as a basic principle in Scripture, set down, you know, you can't condemn an uh, accused murderer on the testimony of one witness. And he did not leave himself without multiple witnesses to his resurrection, right, and to his life. So, in the wisdom of God, he gave for us who, like the early disciples, may tend to doubt in seasons of our life, perhaps, uh, because of persecution or faithlessness. He gave us multiple witnesses. The book of Luke is one of the four Gospels, and we said last week the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is an excellently written historical account designed to give this Theophilus certainty of the things he'd been taught, and it stands as like the first five books in the Jewish scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it stands as, uh, as a re-giving of the, a reaffirmation of the law by symbolically giving Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And Acts is also a bridge between the apostle, the, the gospels, the, the, the record of the life of Christ and the preaching thereof, and the letter, the epistles or letters, the letters that Paul and others wrote, right? So Acts is about, is a history, carefully written and carefully investigated history of the early church. So, um, the first phrase in the book of Acts says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, who is I? And who is Theophilus? Let's start by answering the second question. 
Why would he be called most excellent Theophilus? Raise your hand if you can say off the top of your name the title of that classic American comedy movie that Greg always quotes. I can't remember the name. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, thank you. So in that, they use the classical uh, address, most excellent, uh, kind of sarcastically. It's like a sarcastic retelling of history, and it's funny. Um, but this is, in all seriousness, a very respectful address to this person, Theophilus. Look at, um, you don't have to flip there, I'm going to read Acts 23.26. In Acts 23.26, we see the second time uh, let's see, most excellent Theophilus is in Luke chapter 1. In Acts, he's just writing to Theophilus and doesn't specifically name that title. But in Acts 23, 26, um, the author of Acts does again. Claudius Lysias, this is a letter from Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings, and so on. So here you have these dignitaries writing to each other, and the one gives the other the title His Excellency in third person, right? This is an old-fashioned way of being super respectful, not probably just of anybody, but of somebody who had a political, who held a, a specific level of political office or a high social standing. Look at, uh, if you want to, Acts 24.2. Um, when he had been summoned, Tertullus, this is a lawyer talking, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, yada, yada, yada. He's, um, he's, he's, uh, he's the lawyer who's about to start slamming Paul, and I can't wait to get there. It's a good chapter. It's a fascinating legal accusation, and Paul's defense is classic. So here's this lawyer speaking to this uh, Felix, uh, another dignitary, and he calls him most excellent, just like we saw in Luke. And then, then again, in chapter 26, verse 25, we see it again. Paul said, after this, um, after being accused of being out of his mind, Paul said in his own defense here in this uh, situation like a courtroom. He says, <clears throat> I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And he goes on to explain the gospel to the most excellent Festus. This is a title for a dignitary. Theophilus, which some have said is a general address to the, the ubiquitous or nameless or the, the everyman, the every Christian, um, because of what it means, theo or theos means what? God. And phileo or phyllis or Philadelphia or Philippians. What does philos, phileo mean? Friend, love, brother, brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city, the Delphos of brotherly love. Uh, Philippi, right? It's it's like, it's, it's supposed to be like a good place to live, right? So then give it a nice day, or wherever that comes from. So Theophilus means God lover, or somebody who loves God, right? And some have said 
this is sent to every Christian. And that, uh, while not impossible, is probably less likely than it's actually being mailed to a specific dignitary, a person of influence, of wealth or high social standing. But who sent it? Who sent the letter? And why do we think Luke, who Paul calls the beloved physician in his letter, why do we think Luke wrote it? It doesn't say so. How do we know this kind of stuff? This is ancient history, right? There are some gaps in ancient history. How can we have certainty of the things we have been taught? And that is, by the way, one of our purposes for studying this book. But how do we have certainty of it? Well, God intended that this careful account of the early church be preserved for generations of Christians to come wherever the gospel spread so that we would know our roots and know the power of the Holy Spirit to liberate us from sin and bondage and so that we all would repent from anything in our life that does not follow the pattern of the apostles who received commands from Jesus through the Holy Spirit and obeyed them. This concept is visible in Acts 2.23. And we will, by the way, get right back to the authorship question. I'm trying not to skip ahead too far. Acts 2.23 talks about how even the crucifixion of the Son of God happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing we will read in Acts happened by accident including that this letter addressed to one man was preserved and copied and distributed for the encouragement of us all. So who is the author? Just because the author doesn't give his name doesn't mean that the recipient didn't know who sent the letter. In fact, that would be a big stretch even to suggest that. This is obviously a personal letter written between two people who know each other. The authorship may have been communicated by word of mouth and would have been well known to the early church as this letter were copied and distributed and identified as being of value because it was written under the leading of the Holy Spirit and was for all the church in generations to come. Later, even though the authorship was repeated by oral tradition, by word of mouth, later from early church tradition, we have existing documents from as early as the mid-100s that stated that it was written by Luke, the physician, who was with Paul on his second and third missionary journeys and on his voyage to Rome, the first one. Those in the early church who attested to this include Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, the Muratorian Canon, which is anonymous, and Eusebius. From the text itself, we know that it was written by someone who traveled with Paul, because later in the letter, it goes from like a narrator writing a story about, you know, they did this, and Peter did that, and then they got persecuted, and Peter got up and said, and the voice or the perspective of who's writing it changes from, from that voice to we right towards, right uh, later in the middle of the letter. 
And so we know that the author was somebody who was there from then on, but who wasn't there at the beginning, which fits perfectly with what we just read in Luke. We know that it was someone who traveled with Paul. We know that it was not someone who was spoken of in the third person. What's that? There's I, there's we, us, that's second. There's, what's the third person? He, she, it, they, right? So it's not somebody who, in those passages later in the book of Acts, where he says, we did this, you know, Paul and this other guy, you know, Silas, ah, and we, we went and we traveled from here to there. It's, it's not someone who is named in the third person in one of those sections. So that really narrows it down, and that leaves few remaining possibilities. It was somebody who was educated in classical Greek. It was, we also know from the text, we'll just skip the explanation why, it was a Gentile. And it was someone who showed an interest in medical issues and used accurate medical and nautical terminology. So here's somebody who knows stuff, right? Here's somebody who's been to school, probably a lot of school. And from the testimony of these church fathers we have named, we understand this to have been who the man whom Paul calls in one of his letters, Luke, the beloved physician. A physician by training and education would uh, have specifically taken an interest in medical aspects of healing and health issues, and it would make sense that he would have recorded such things. So that, agree, that internal evidence from the text agrees with what the early church fathers have passed down to us by church tradition, which, uh, which is less certain than the authoritative word of God. There's no reason to think it wasn't Luke. And there's no good scholarship that would give a good reason to think it wasn't written by about the year 62 AD. Not before, not after, roughly. 62 or close to it. 62 to 64 or 65. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to start out reading it in the New Living Translation because I think it's a little smoother. It's, not, uh, it's a little more comfortable English. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Then going back to the ESV, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So right away, we see one of the purposes for the book of Acts. He said in his first book, in the Gospel of Luke, he told everything that Jesus began to do and teach. This is not just a a technical description, it has strong theological implications for us. The implication is that Jesus continued to do and teach, and that's what the book of Acts and beyond is about. The implication is he's still here, he's still doing, and he's still teaching. And how is he teaching? He's teaching through the scriptures, he's teaching from, through the Holy Spirit, and he's teaching through the apostles and the next generations of disciples, right? During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time 
and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And we talked about that in the last several messages, several of his appearings in the book of John and in the book of the Gospel of Luke. And, and after debate and discussion and some faithlessness, they believed. And even Thomas, it doesn't say he put his hand in Jesus, uh, he put his finger in Jesus' hand or his hand in Jesus' side. It says, it says, when Jesus invited him to do that, he believed. And he said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And that is us. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. So there's another theme. The, the kingdom of God. What is it? That gets thrown around all the time these days. And we've talked about it a lot in our congregation. So we'll come back to that later and talk about it briefly, but in a little more detail. Typically, the average Christian, let's say, in evangelical Christianity, believes that the kingdom of heaven, of God, or the kingdom of heaven, equals what? Heaven, right? The kingdom of God is in heaven and on earth, and it's more than going to heaven, and it's more than later. It's here, it's now, it's growing, it's not full or complete or finished, but it is very much here. And that is one of the main themes of the book of Acts and, of course, the Gospels. When Jesus tells uh, his detractors, if I do miracles, if I drive out demons, right, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. And how far away is your hand? Less than six feet. Less than six feet. <laughs> right? You can't get your hand very far from you. That means it's here. The kingdom of God, and what is it really? And what is it today? And what's it supposed to be? And is it like a violent kingdom? And is it a, what's the government we're supposed to have? Are we supposed to ignore our own governments and have only government by God and have, you know, politically autonomous uh, churches? And like, what, what are we supposed to think about all that stuff? We're going to begin to answer those questions as we study the book of Acts. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. I am going to argue that waiting on the Lord is a main theme of the book of Acts, even though I realize I stopped in the middle of a sentence. To wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. Where did the Father promise that? We're going to look at the scriptures. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the main and overarching theme of the book of Acts is found if you skip down to verse 8, which is probably not on the screen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. If we could get the map up, actually. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And I'll bet right then and there, Peter is like, you guys go to Samaria, I'll go to Judea, right? <laughs> Here's, uh-oh, 
There we go. Here's Jerusalem. I hope everybody can see it. Okay, so Mediterranean Sea, Europe, Asia, Africa, Middle East, right? Here's Jerusalem. Judea is the territory around Jerusalem. We said last week, Jews live there, essentially. And then you have Galilee of the Gentiles, where the disciples grew up, but they really held on to their Jewish roots until Jesus challenged their whole notion of roots, right? And here's Samaria. Samaria is where people, cultures, ethnicities mix, right? I think I'm, yeah. And then here's Sidon and Tyre, like Gentile places, right? And Peter, of course, is down there in the region of Phoenicia when in Acts chapter 10, this sheet gets let down from heaven and it's got all kinds of animals on it. All the creatures the Lord made. All kinds of things that according to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, which Peter had apparently, to the best of his ability, never broken. He'd never had breakfast, lunch, or dinner in a Gentile's house ever in his life. Right? So the book of Acts breaks down some of our expectations of what our identity really is. There's nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage or ethnicity. That's a good thing. But in Christ, we who are many are one loaf. We are, we are one family of God, one blood. Not, you know, European blood, Japanese blood, Australian blood, whatever blood is running through your veins. It's the blood of Christ. And according to the scriptures, the life is in the blood. And we who have partaken of the blood of Christ are united together in his life. And so we share common roots, the same multicultural, multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile roots as in the book of Acts. Praise the Lord. God is good. So Jesus was very modern, I guess. So the main theme, the overarching theme of the book of Acts in Acts 1.8, which you should memorize, is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, which metaphorically speaking might have been considered Rome, the center of the Gentile world at the time, according to uh, the Romans and Jews. So the purpose of the book of Acts, the purposes include to explain, like the Gospel of Luke, explain the life of Jesus until his ascension to his throne in heaven. Acts is a detailed history of the early church, carefully investigated and written with expertise. And as we saw, under the anointing and through the purpose of the Holy Spirit. It didn't remain a letter written from one man to another. It remained a record that we might know the certainty of the things we have been taught, coupled with all of the gospel witnesses and the testimony of the prophets, and the heritage of faith with power passed on to us ever since the early disciples, from faith to faith. Another purpose is to witness to the resurrection itself, which we have said. Another purpose is to show that the promise of the Father, mentioned in uh, verse 4 or 5, that this promise of the Father is for all generations, not just for that first or maybe second, first and second generation of early Christians. 
it, show, it says specifically that the promise is for all who are far off, which means all generations. That is, as soon as people in the book of Acts, oh, um, period. There's, somebody didn't finish his sentence. Um, and, and Acts gives examples of what happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all those who believe. And those examples are supposed to be patterns for the generations to come, not mere curiosities for us to see and think, God was cool, but he doesn't do that anymore. Acts is to show the way of salvation and what that should look like. That is, as soon as people in the book of Acts found out that they had been appointed for salvation, they became disciples of Jesus, and their lives changed Radically, we're going to study specifically how their lives changed and compare those changes to our own lives. And as a congregation, repent of any unbelief and any sin that is hindering us from having lives that look like theirs in every way possible. If we too are disciples of Jesus, our lives should look like those of the early disciples. So, keep the maps, bring your hard copy Bibles to church if you're willing to read from a hard copy Bible, and read Acts by yourself or with a housemate or a partner throughout the week. And as you study the book of Acts on your own, week in and week out, seek the Lord for more certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, for more knowledge of what the life of a disciple looks like. And for more anointing by the Holy Spirit to witness to his goodness and purpose which continues the same in the world today, thereby showing yourselves to be partners with the early disciples in witnessing to his resurrection. Amen.